This week, we're joined by Karen Freeb, Head of International Hotels and Hospitality Team, Bird & Bird, to discuss a flourishing hotel market and the imminent growth in M&A as companies prepare for a regional sell-off. We also discuss the positive changes the sector has seen during the pandemic and our hopes that it won't return to its less flexible times. Welcome to another episode of New Tricks, which is the weekly podcast from UDOG PR, where you are very welcome, as are your listening ears, should you choose Neil Young, Janie Mitchell, or any of the others. We are we are a an all-inclusive podcast and not controversial in any way. Um, we are joined today by Karen Freeb, who is the Head of International Hotels and Hospitality at Bird & Bird. Karen, welcome to New Tricks. Very pleasant it is to have you too. How are you? Very well, thank you, Emily, and delighted not to be potentially competing with um, Joni Mitchell and Neil Young this morning. Fine way to start the day. Yes, <laughs> thoughts for some sort of Channel 4 series <laughs> pop into one's mind, competing with Joni Mitchell. I'm not sure what you can, can compete with her on, but... Um... I suspect Channel Four are already putting putting the uh, putting the finishing touches to that pitch proposal for the for that program as we speak. Yeah, exactly. Although Spuddy's joined us. Hello from Paris, Buddy. How are you? And your eyes of judgment? He is well. Judgmental today. He's waiting for the plumber. He loves a workman. And he's looking very French, if I may say so. Well, he is very French. You see, he's from Normandy. So you can say what you want in front of him because he doesn't understand. Ali's <laughs> <laughs> off. Um, Karen, how are you? Yes, good, thank you. We're having a, uh, the year's got off to a pretty busy start. Um, we're in the middle of preparing, of course, our strategies and planning for the year ahead, looking at what's happening and what our key themes are going to be uh, for our, our hotel and hospitality sector group throughout the world. How is the market looking from your strategic viewpoint? Well, mostly we have been engaged so far on um, hotel management agreements and franchises where I would think that the market is very buoyant indeed. Um, some of our clients are, are um, dealing with a lot of uh, new instructions, having to get new deals signed within a short space of time. So we're supporting quite a few of them on that. So yes, they're very good from that side of things, although we're all looking to the M&A market this year, early in the year to see what's going to be happening. Um, now that we are softly emerging from lockdown, and so how are you? How are you seeing? Are you seeing this sort of quarter of reckoning that we've been anticipating for the last eight quarters? It, I think it's a little bit too early to say, but for sure, um, I think that people are beginning to shine up their boots and think, right, let let's move forward in all sorts of ways. So I, I think there will be personally more of a shakeout here in terms of um, M&A activity. I do have clients who are saying, right, we're going to be preparing our regional hotels for sale. They've been doing extremely well. Gosh, we're glad they're not in London. Um, but we still think that this could be a very good time to, to uh, dust them off, shine them up and, and get them ready for, for sale. I've also had uh, surprisingly approaches from uh, overseas Asia in particular, Singapore clients saying, right, I've got money to place. We're starting to look at the UK again. They were very disappointed when they had to draw back um, because of the COVID scenario. And they're now saying we still think London's a great place to, to put our money. 
And, you know, can you alert us to opportunities? So we have had a number of people from Asia in particular saying, please tell us if you hear of any opportunities, anything that we can look at, whether it's buying or lending. We've got money to place, yeah? If if people are looking to sell their regional hotels, does that mean that they think that the regions are going off the boil or they're happy to pass on the the delightful trading opportunity to someone else out of the, the goodness of their hearts? Well, I think there's a feeling that it, they <laughs> maybe they can uh, persuade people that these are now stellar performing assets and that the staycation market is here to stay. But mm. I think there is definitely an underlying feeling that this can't last. Right. Because those regional hotels have for sure been buoyed up by um, by people from the UK deciding they were going to spend their time in, I don't know, Shakespeare's birthplace or wherever. Yeah. Yes, yes, we're just, uh, as you're listening to this, dear listener, we were seeing that Brookfield is yet again thinking about selling off centre parks um, for what's four, four billion. Probably a good time to do it. Yep, yeah, lots of people have been enjoying the weird domes. You could get yourself half an OEO IPO for that. You would, yeah, get yourself half an OEO. <laughs> Possibilities are endless. Yes, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because... I don't know. We've, we have talked about this quite a lot on the podcast and well, we should, and why not continue, but whether once international travel, once, you know, once, once it, we are getting on a plane doesn't require 27 forms and various tests, whether that will be the default and we'll all, you know, race back to our guaranteed sun and cheap cocktails, um, or whether the staycation, the domestic travel has that, has that pull an element of I don't know tradition and and has it has it has it been part of our um, travel lives for long enough to earn a regular place or was it something that we were doing because we couldn't do anything else? That's a tricky one. You do read that people can't wait to get some sun and that they're all going to be heading off for the sun as soon as they possibly can, as you say, Emily. Once the uh, once the form filling has become less of a strenuous procedure. But I do think there is um, an underlying veil of caution here and that there will be people who think, I'm going to stick with the UK for now. There's just And it's just too much hassle to take my family um, away. So for example, I don't, I don't yeah. know what's going to happen to the ski season this year. Watching, as I do Ski Sunday yesterday, they introduced all sorts of interesting um, conundrums. You know, we, we, well, we've got the Olympics, the Winter Olympics coming up, which on the one hand will probably make people super keen to go skiing. But on the other hand, you've got the cost of it exacerbated increasingly, I think, by the fact that there is less and less snow in some of these resorts. And we've got the whole environmental issue of how you create um, artificial snow at low cost. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, and that's what people traditionally do. I mentioned skiing because it's that sort of time of year, isn't it? I don't know. Uh, yes, I should, I, should be, well, I should be going near, near skiing next month, touch as wood. But, but domestically for me and by train and... Um, Chamonix, which I, I know you're aware of, Karen, is one of those um, resorts where they, they've seen this environmental impact coming a long way off, haven't they? And they now have more people stay there in the summer months for the hiking and the throwing yourself off with the thing, the whatever that is, 
<laughs> they're doing that. Yeah, well, they're for sure they're having to adapt, aren't they? And they've done it. Yes, they've, they've done very well. And they now do better in the summer months than they do in the winter. But that's not for everyone, obviously. That's not possible everywhere. And Chamonix is very well connected on front, on um, on the European high-speed rail network. So, um, well, look, let's hope that this, um, the last couple of years, have seen a, a, a boost for the UK uh, hospitality sector that will endure. Um, and, of course, people are going to go away and look for winter sun, but perhaps they'll be more inclined to also think about their own country a little bit more and, uh, you know, support the business here. Let's do a thoroughly robust, um, absolutely no flaws uh, research poll. Have either of you booked an international holiday this summer? Not yet. I'm going to though. I've just, but I've just got back from one already. So I, 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 you know, I've beaten you on that one, Emily, because I spent the first two weeks of the year on an international holiday. So mm, sensible. Very yeah. lovely. And which international did you go to? In, in the Caribbean. I went. To, we went to Barbados, which I have to say has made things um, as as easy as possible for the tourists, and they're very welcoming for the tourists, but very very cautious when you get there. So, for example, you can't go into any hotel or any restaurant without having your temperature taken. Um, masking is compulsory pretty much everywhere. So they're very, very careful. Lots and lots of form filling. And I think that will ease up a bit. But um, yeah, nevertheless, within those constraints, there's definitely a real push to get tourists uh, over there. Yes, no, I haven't booked anything for the summer. The summer seems seems far, far away. Although I think, as we've said before in this podcast, we're seeing now a seasonality, a COVID seasonality of it seems that summer is sort of you get two or three months where you probably can bank on being able to move around the globe reasonably freely, and then it sort of closes in again in the winter. and And I expect that hotels are going to going to adapt to that, or will have to adapt to that. So, so yes, haven't booked anything, Emily. No, absolutely nothing whatsoever. Um, and I think for that very reason, because I'm I am so tired of booking things and then not being able to do them. I think that's going to stop now, though. I think I, I feel that that will be better. Um, I thought we should trial some short European breaks. You know, we've got uh, uh, wonderful places in Europe that we can visit. But again, I think, oh, is it worth that long weekend in Paris or whatever if you can get there? Because I, I, again, again, I think it's going to come down to is it relatively easy? Is the form filling going to make it a disproportionate effort? Well, it takes me back to um, years and years and years ago, and I went on a on a Radisson trip to St Petersburg to look at their very, 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 very large hotels that they have there. And we were all struck by what a great place it is for a long weekend. We just went for a long weekend um, for the White Nights, and it was still a wonderful city, fascinating, um, exhilarating, foreign, interesting, still quite European. And I, gosh, I would come back here for a long weekend on any number of very quick to get to, you know, not very long long distance. But the form filling is for anyone who's been to Russia will know is horrific. And and you have to be where you say you are going to be all the time. You have to prove you've been where you, you say you are when you come that. back. Yeah. All that. That was such a precursor to all of this that you now, you know, I would I would never go back without you have to employ a travel agent if you want to go to Russia, as we know, because of all of that. And that hasn't changed. So yes, the form filling is a nightmare. But um I was interested in what you were saying earlier, Karen, about um like the effervescence of signing of all of the things. What's driving this? wild and lavish enthusiasm 
Oh, the, uh, the, the signing of deals. Well, um, hotel companies still have their targets. They're driving forward, particularly, I think, on the franchise side of things. Um, they're trying to get into new markets where they don't have um, a position necessarily now. I've, I've uh, had an interesting uh, opportunity brought um, to me recently where this individual was saying, look, I've got this hotel that I'm redeveloping. Please, can you put it to, can you circulate it to whatever contacts that you may um, think might be interested in this? And I've got, I've had at least three uh, client contacts saying, gosh, that's a, that's a region that we'd really like to get into. Please, can we have more information about that? So there's a, there's a lot of hunger out there. And look, you've got to look at the new openings that are scheduled even for London. We've got places like the old uh, Churchill War Room slated to open. And I, I, th- I do think if you get your product right, and there's a bit of a, a bit of a challenge there, isn't there, as to what the right product is going to be uh, for the future, for this new world that we're in. Do hotels just keep on as they were doing before? So will we still have our recognisable budget segment? Will we still have our recognisable trendy Hoxton type segment and then the luxury untouchables at the other end and coming into all of this we've got this huge debate around sustainability which is no longer the sort of yawnsville of our sector it pervades everything so um, there will be a lot of pressure on all of those segments I think to to step up and see how they're going to meet the challenges of, of the future. Yep. And with their enthusiasm for getting into the lovely, lovely deals, the things that are able, are the brands being more flexible? Is there more key money or is it still? I haven't seen the ones that we're dealing with. There hasn't been um, key money as such, maybe one of them. But yeah, look, the brands have their own requirements and um, there, there, there can be a degree of flexibility depending on location, obviously. There always has to be a, a meeting of minds, doesn't there? So there's always a tussle. I do regret that there is still so much tussling. Um, and, you know, you always think, look, a management agreement, a franchise agreement, how different can that be every time? What? Why on earth can't we standardise these agreements to a degree? Um but it, but it is very difficult all of the time. And when we start to introduce, you know, one of the projects that I'm working on this year with the Energy Environment Alliance is trying to green up some of those contracts. But I'm in discussions with a number of the players at the moment saying, do you actually want to green them up? You know, is there an appetite here? Do you feel that it's burdensome? And, you know, we're seeing more and more in leases, for example, because it's not all just about franchise and management agreements. Landlords now are getting planning permissions uh, to build a hotel, say, and they're being told, right, on the roof, you have to have this lovely green wall and you have to commit to maintain it, usually under a Section 106 agreement. And uh, we want you to accommodate so many bicycles. You're not to allow parking around these times and there'll be restrictions on drop off, etc., etc. Now, a lot of these um uh, pla- uh, requirements that are being pushed down from the regulators obviously have a cost implication and landlords who are used to getting FRI for repairing and insuring leases in other words putting all the financial obligations onto the tenants are saying oh yeah we've got um we've now got all this additional stuff coming onto our books 
uh, because we have to comply with all these ESG requirements. And, and of course, we're going to pass that on to the tenants uh, because we want a clean balance sheet. And tenants are saying, well, just a second, you know, am I suddenly going to have to pay for all of this on top of the market rent that you would be expecting me to pay? And um, I, we're seeing these clauses wash more and more into, into institutional leases. And there is still a, um, I think there's going to be a bit of kickback there from tenants when they see what they're being expected to to pay. And certainly with management contracts, we've been seeing um, owners who have their own green policies across their estate, for example, if they have an estate saying, we have a green policy, you operator have to comply with this with everything that you do. But of course, the operator saying, that's fine, but I'm not going to pay for it because operators are there running the business on behalf of the owner in return for a fee, which I think is fair enough. Yes, we will every time we, you know, if we feel that a bedroom has got defective um, downlighters, for example, yes, we will change them all. And yes, we will comply with your owner's policy in relation to uh, electricity and lighting, but we're not going to pay yet. You know, that's not for us. That's for you, owner, to pay for all of that. I wonder where this all ends with the owner, because the owners have had a tricky time of it all. It ends with the guests. Where it ends. <laughs> this is what the guests want. The guests want to stay in a green. But do the guests want to pay for it? Probably not. So no, no. I thought it was interesting with it, the, all the things that planning are imposing with bicycles and things like that, because you, you just know in the back of your head that there isn't also an improvement to the infrastructure, which means that you could bicycle to a hotel or you could go without taking your car. There's we're not still seeing that kind of massive infrastructure planning that needs to support all this kind of nonsense um and by nonsense i mean things that we have to bring in save the planet <laughs> yes yes the, 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 i think in some ways we all think oh but leave the luxury brands out of this luxury is and sustainability they don't really fit together well surprisingly they do and a lot of the luxury black brands are actually um leading the charge when it comes to sustainability which i think is is great to see really although having watched i don't know if you saw that program i watched it yesterday afternoon a very bored hour about corinthia about a hotel um, program about luxury hotels and it was really it was really quite fun and um they've got this incredible general manager and he was taking us on a tour of the really expensive penthouse suite which costs i think oh gosh am i wrong something hundreds of thousands of pounds to stay in a night and there are apparently still people who are prepared to you know pay a lot of money to come and stay in central london but that, that yeah it's interesting what you were saying about the 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 synonymous luxury being synonymous or not necessarily with sustainability and i wonder if and this may be one for a sort of seven o'clock gin on a friday night conversation rather than 10 a.m on a monday morning but whether we are in in the process that we're going through, whether we're actually redefining what luxury is and whether luxury is the height of sustainability and having that. It is. I think it is. I think now you cannot have a luxury brand uh, as we go forward that isn't sustainable. The two will absolutely have to go together. 
and actually in guests' minds, coming back to the guests, those guests are prepared. Not only are they prepared to pay for it, but they expect it. So those brands uh, and and those brands, if those brands have the you know the resources, whether that be operationally, financially, or whatever, to be able to provide that, then that will resonate with the guests. That will propel the reputation of the brand of that luxury brand, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, one for your one for your gin drinking considerations. <laughs> Yeah, the um, and and also the whole knotty question about careers and lack of people in the sector, which I think is uh, it, it is is a really hot topic at the moment. It's something certainly that we're going to be focusing on in the year ahead. You know, careers for the sector, um, what the big employment issues are, um, and, and how the, the sector is going to cope really. Is the answer paying more money? Well, it, it should be partly, shouldn't it? But again, you know, just going back to that programme I was watching yesterday, everybody that they interviewed at the Corinthia, none of them was a, a UK national. Not saying there's anything wrong with that, but there's that age-old debate of how do you attract people from England, Scotland and Wales to go into the hospitality sector? You know, it's really tough. It don't serve... No, to How get are the shelves all the issues Paris, uh, that days. have come about because of Brexit, obviously, you know. But generally, attracting people to hospitality um, anywhere in the world, apart from the real, you know, centres of excellence what, that we've been used to in the past, is is a tough, tough call, really, and particularly tough when it comes to getting women into uh, senior positions in the sector. That Play, no flexibility, no <laughs> <laughs> so on. Mm, there's obvious solutions, but again, they're expensive. So, how did you find yourself in uh, working in the hospitality sector, Karen? How um, I started um, out as quite a junior lawyer, working for um, a company that was then known as Granada Group, and it was one of my firm's top clients well they're very top client and Granada Group at that time owned a whole selection of properties you know they I I started off looking at bingo clubs so I was going to all these glamorous uh, bingo clubs in places like Stoke Newington and and so forth and sold a lot of bingo clubs in my time and um, of course you remember the famous infamous takeover of uh, Rocco Forte's empire by Jerry Robinson, as he sadly um, passed away quite recently. But Jerry had a, a, a plan and he decided that Granada was going to take over Forte. And from there, that's how I got involved with hotels. I had to learn sharply when Granada started to own hotels. And from there, I dealt with various disposal programs for there were lots of spin off companies that had taken bits of that empire. Um, and that's how I that's how I got involved, really. And um, what um, what delights you about the sector? I think it's a very varied sector. Look, I'm a real estate lawyer by training, but I for years and years I I wouldn't say you know the majority of my work is in the real estate sector. I know all about real estate, but the great thing about dealing with a hotel is that you have to bring in. It's I always say to people I train, it's a living, breathing enterprise. So you've got people at the top, you've got employment issues, you've got all of those contracts to look at that make people 
you know, that make a hotel run from crockery and food through to linen and employment contracts as well. And, uh, you know, you've got IP issues, you've got trademarks, what's the hotel called? So uh, no no two issues are ever the same. Um, and and it's a very broad sector um, experience dealing with a, a hotel transaction, which is what I love about it. Um, taking us seamlessly on, may not be seamlessly, but if I say it seamlessly, then it won't sound like I'm wedging it in quite as much. Um, could you please share with the group what your um, most memorable hotel experience is, please? Oh, I've probably got a couple, one with children when they were little and one... Uh, Without, but I, I have very fond memories of um, my husband and I taking our children to um, do a tour down Highway One uh, in the States when they were little, and uh, staying at wonderful places. Um, yeah, driving from uh, San Francisco down in the fog wasn't quite so memorable. We hardly saw a thing of, of Big Sur and stuff. But we stayed in wonderful hotels like Quail Lodge in Carmel. And we stayed in Shutters on the Beach, which was absolutely stunning. So I always remember those incredible hotels in L.A. We have to walk for miles across the beach to get to the sea. But, you know, then coming back from that to a wonderful UK hotel, which I have to say is Fox Hill Manor in the Cotswolds. I'd go there anytime. Uh, and it's very small. And the approach that they have to their get customer care is quite exceptional. Um, you know, you can choose your own food every evening within limits, really. Um, yeah, I think I, I, Fox Hill Manor is just lovely. There, there we go. Um I quite fancy the idea of oh, choosing your own food. Yes, pop down, pop in and see the chef and talk to him about what you'd like for lunch or what you'd like for dinner. Here are some thoughts on the blackboard in the kitchen. Yeah. Mm, Cotswolds is a is a mere trundle up the end for me. So you do have to save up before you go. So I, I would say it's quite mm-hmm. a special occasion hotel. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do that. Well, you see, but at the moment I don't want to do it because I'll just be let down. I won't be able to do it and therefore but, but it's it interesting the ones that are actually doing well. You know, we talk about the regions, but if you think about the London market, we've got to get London going again, haven't we? Otherwise I think there's trouble on all sorts of levels. But you know, what's been actually working well in London? If you look, I think quite specific new models have been doing really well, like, for example, the Beaverbrook Townhouse in Sloan Street. Apparently that's going great guns. And I think, you know, that's partly because the people who are running that have got a great formula there and they've decided, you know, well, people like to come to somewhere exclusive. Um, and it's, yeah, I've heard it's doing really well. So that kind of exclusive vibe maybe the sort of club atmosphere um is something that people like mm. i think so we're um, we're chuntering through this and i'm i'm about to ask you the questions that we ask everyone at the end of the um episode but before that i just want to check with with the paris office whether there are any further questions um and spuddy seems to have gone to sleep any questions from spuddy he has gone. There are no no questions from Spuddy at all at this point. Are there any he's new flavours of dog treats that dog I should know about? Dog, he's still into the dog ice cream. Um, oh. I mean, they don't do that over here. Just at the um, there's a there's a dog cafe in Hampstead where he oh, likes. Really? Yes, oh. an old dog cafe. It's you go there for sort of coffee and occasional fights. 
They have one of those in Clifton now. I fear that people have lo- have clocked on to the fact that everyone has got a dog or a puppy, a pandemic puppy, and so now there is an entire infrastructure that's been created to to look after the, the puppies. So you have to next time you're next time you're around these parts, we'll go to Clifton. Go to the we can compare it to the dog cafe in Hampstead. Lovely comparison to dog cafe. <laughs> well, this is where hotels are going, of course, because um, old Chris Nassetta, didn't he a while back said, in fact, presumably he'll be reiterating this that they were turning to focus on people who had dogs as a possible class of guests. I'm afraid that was the only thing you could come up with, yes. I think some hotels have whole doggy boutiques, don't they? Don't Clifton have... uh, uh, Some hotels like Clifton are very dog-friendly and they sell little doggy embellished coats with crests and things on them. So, yeah. How? How? No idea. I had to buy some some boots for the dog so that we can go to Chamonix, um, which I hadn't... Yes, I, I had no, no, they're sort of, I'll, I'll show you, um, they're sort of like sort of pl- plastic, sort of like like you would put if you were going into a hospital and you were going to, into the operating room or something over your shoes, mm-hmm. like that. No, I see, yeah, yeah. And I thought, that's ridiculous, please don't be so stupid. Um, but it turns out that, that snow melt and things has lots of chemicals in because of the things that they treat the snow with for skiing. And so, yeah, and it's best not to burn their feet off. Yeah, I have seen little doggies in Chicago wearing shoes like that oh see there we are see i'm i'm yes although the coat i fear is more more fashionable and we all know what an urban dog spuds is so he, he yes he, well, he, got, he got his coat from the same person yeah. got his coat so does he have his own instagram page at Catherine? he does not because oh, because he doesn't there <laughs> i just no there have been requests but no i think that much judgment all over the there's enough judgment on the internet already without him adding to it. (laughs) Oh, brilliant. Um, Right, Karen, are you ready? I'm going to ask you some questions. So question number one, when the shutters came up and I had the jabs in my arm, the first thing I did was? I went for a very nice meal with my husband to celebrate, yeah. Hurrah, very good, very good. You get bonus points for virtuous answer involving your family and also supporting the sector yeah we headed actually to the Connaught as soon as we possibly could because last valentine's day when we couldn't go anywhere last year 2020 we ordered in from helen daroz one of her wonderful delivery menus um uh for to celebrate and i thought as soon as we possibly can i'm actually going to go there to the Connaught, which again is i would say one of london's most wonderful restaurants um, had a fantastic time. Very good. Delightful. Um, the best thing about the hotel sector is? Well, I was going to say it's diversity, but I don't mean in terms of um, diversity in the truest sense of the word. But as I said before, the fact that it embraces, it's not just bricks and mortar. There's way more to it than that. Than that. And from a lawyer's point of view, that's got to be very fulfilling. So you're not just selling a property. You're not just looking at is my roof caving in? It, it's it's way more than that. And I love dealing with management contracts. That's my favourite thing now. Marvellous. The hotel sector would be significantly improved if? Um, if, if there were more centres of excellence to train up people to um, 
take part in the sector, I think. You know, the way we have the hotel school in Lausanne, I'd love to see more places like that in the UK, for example. And I'd like there to be a real focus on careers for young people and for young women in particular to encourage them to get into the sector and keep them in the sector so that we eventually see more female chief executives and finance directors. Very good. What the industry needs now is? What the industry needs now is to... I, I, again, it's the it's the the people issue. I think that's that's the the big concern, and to work out how it's going to deliver hospitality, which is after all the wonderful thing about this sector. You know, the hospitable elements of it. How is it going to deliver that in a world where there are battles to get the best people um, to deliver the hospitality? You know, I have a very good friend who's a GM at a restaurant in central London, and he has people coming into his restaurant trying to poach his staff. You know, wow. come and work for me. Um, there, there is a real war war on the streets of London yeah, <laughs> in terms of getting the best people to service mm, your restaurant then, in particular, yeah. And it's from such a limited pool. Um, okay, and finally, uh, what do you think we've learnt from all of this? I hope what we've learned, well, you know, I used to do a lot of talking and a lot of listening to people who wanted flexible working before lockdown. And I've been very involved in the whole uh, DNI agenda for a long time. And we've suddenly got flexible working. And I, I think it would be a real shame if we were to allow the dinosaurs in the workplace. And I'm not just talking about hospitality sector here, but the dinosaurs in the workplace to pull us back to where where we were before, to undo all the good that's been done for men and for women, with children in particular, who can now see their kids a bit more, which would have been a wonderful thing for me when I was at that stage in my life, you know. And uh, I think it's a, it would be dreadful to say to people, right, sorry, you're all back in the office all the time now, back to those macho, macho times where you couldn't have pictures of your kids and stuff like that in the office. No, come on, we, we've gone beyond that. The world's moved on. Let, let's embrace it. Yes, we need to get people back together, but don't be draconian about it. Absolutely. And so say all of us. I could not agree more. Um, Karen, thank you for your time. I think that concludes today's podcast. And now we can all go and free listen to whatever musical choice we fancy because there is there are no limitations here. Any further thoughts from you, Catherine? No, I'm here. Sorry, no, no further thoughts from me. Animal has returned to my lap so that he can continue his vigil. I think study approves by the look of him. Or maybe he just wants a walk. I think he's he is as ever gripped by the search for dust motes, um, which is all the all-consuming joy of his life, isn't it, Spud? So he's watching by the window just to see what might fly by. Well, it's been it's been delightful for me to talk to you both, and I'm I'm thrilled to see that you're doing so well. Uh, your new company's doing so well. That's that's a joy to see. So keep on trucking, ladies, in the year ahead, and. Uh, Hope to see you again on lots of platforms as we move through the year. That's very kind of you to say. And yes, we will. And we shall see you there. And it will be marvellous. Thank you both for your time. Thank you for listening. And do join us again next time for another episode of New Tricks. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. 
So that concludes our thoughts for this week. Thank you to everyone involved in creating this episode and providing something for your ears whilst walking the dog, washing the cat, chopping the veg, or however else you pass the time while podcasting. Please do review and subscribe if you get your ear entertainment via Apple or follow new tricks if your ear delight comes from Spotify. These things make a difference, apparently. Until next time.